0: This is... Um, sorry? What's that mean? Oh, uh, Master in Educational Technology. Um, yeah, it's a weird short form, right? there's, uh There's a guy who... I can't remember. He used to work for the base hospital, he works <laughs> for a service now. His, um, he did an undergrad degree, uh, and it's BABE, B-A-B-E. It's bastard, uh, bastards, <laughs> Bachelor of Arts... In business economics or something okay. babe yeah. <laughs> anyway uh, so question for you I'll, I'm gonna go through this fairly quickly because it's a review but uh, uh, talk to me about shock hmm what uh, w- let's talk about categories of shock what kinds of shock categories do we have shock, shock. no, no p- yeah, p- yeah. okay yeah. Whoa, whoa 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 one of the time put your hands up yeah not compensated decops i categories yeah Okay, so obstructive, let's uh, put that over here. Yeah? Uh, Just hands up, because you know, when everyone's talking at once, Gary. Yeah, so cardiogenic. Jackal. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, um Yeah, so we'll call that distributive, because that's... Call that the tank? Yeah. Is neurogenic considered a distributed? Well, uh, yeah. So yeah, neuro. It's a yeah, okay. it's just like a sub. Yeah. Neurogenic. Yeah. 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 So hypovolemia could fall under volume. Uh, anything else? So we got pump, volume tank hmm yeah that would be obstructed would be mechanical same thing under uh, cardiogenic um, other than pump failures in CHF could be yeah could be could be rates could be failure yeah could be a cardiomyopathy yeah okay Directive saying cardiogenic shock is. ME, it's there's yeah, it's it's restrictive. You know what's funny? Um, I'll just tell you, when you're PCP, the medical directors are extraordinarily restrictive, and you know you worry about did you follow the protocol that you should have followed, or did you, you know, should you not follow it? Be- of the circumstances um, when you get to ACP level it's still fairly restrictive but a little more liberal than is a PCP and you can patch for more uh, when you get to CCP and hopefully some of you go on to CCP you'll find it's so much more relaxing even though your scope of practice is, is much larger there's a lot less restriction on you you can use your your clinician mind to to sort of problem solve what needs to be done for the patient, and you just patch to have a conversation with a doc about it. But um, you know, it's you know, I talk to uh, you know guys like John Lee who teaches with us, and and uh, uh, it reminds me of how you know he looks at ACP and PCP protocols and thinks, how do people function under those under that oppressive environment? <laughs> it really is it really is oppressive in a lot of ways. Um, like when you're CCP, if you've got to give a drug and you don't carry it, you just look it up. Like you can get it from the hospital and you can give it, you just got to look it up. Make sure you know, understand the drug before you give it. You, know, you might even have a conversation with a nurse or something about it, but, um, but there's so many restrictions placed on PCP and ACP. So, um, so definition shock is uh, widespread inadequate perfusion. And oxygenation of cells and inadequate removal of waste products. That's the advanced trauma life support course uh, definition of, uh, of shock. And um, it sort of pu- falls under four, one of four categories. So volume pump tank or obstructive mechanical. What, give me two things that would fall under obstructive mechanical. Tension yeah, yeah. Raise the hand because all he hears is blah, blah 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 blah. Yeah, Pete. Yeah, tension pneumo dissection causing. yeah aortic dissection might be volume or might be mechanical Ante. cardiac tamponade, cardiac tamponade yeah yeah how many of you listen to heart sounds routinely Not yeah so you're never gonna know a cardiac tamponade unless you start listening to heart sounds routinely you'll never know a murmur you'll never know someone who's ruptured a papillary muscle my advice to you is if if you're gonna auscultate the chest, always listen to heart sounds. Just s- a simple listen at the fourth intercostal space, left sternal border, fifth intercostal space, midclavicular line, just to hear if you've got a clear lub-dub. Because if you never listen to heart sounds, you'll never know what a muffled heart sound sounds like. Yeah? What kind of stethoscope do you use? I have a real tough time listening to stuff. I don't know if it's my ears, but I, I do have a real tough time listening to stuff. My and the sound is just, you know, you know, not something I can even hear. My advice to you is uh, borrow someone else's stethoscope and I try I to. I have a good stethoscope. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, good stethoscopes are different for everybody, right? And the earpieces sometimes make a difference. Oh, okay. um, I have two. I have a, a Littman Classic Cardiology um, something, and I've got the Master Cardiology one, the one with just the the big diaphragm. But if you press hard, you get the small bell underneath, oh, okay. uh, which oh, I really okay. like. Um so yeah let's uh so another way to think about um these sort of categorizations of shock is think about volume would be a preload issue so decreased pre- preload um, pump would be an inotropic issue so uh, Uh, May not necessarily be an inotropic issue, but in most cases when we're talking about cardiogenic shock, we're talking about acute left ventricular failure, acute on chronic, and uh, it's an inotropic issue, uh, combined with uh, an increased afterload uh, that puts them into failure. Um, And then afterload, and then obstruction mechanical. Another way to think about it is um, volume would also be hypovolemic, so that can be hemorrhagic or it can be volume depletion through dehydration, things like that. Um, cardiogenic, distributive, obstruction. Uh, so volume, um, what have we got? We've got hemorrhage, dehydration, and burns. Um, how we resuscitate de- depends largely on how rapidly they lost their fluids. That's the, wa- uh, the way I look at it. So if they've got uh, hemorrhagic shock, we resuscitate them quickly. We start a 14-gauge IV, as close to central circulation as possible. We run the fluids in full bore. Um, If they're a little older, we might be a little more cautious with the speed of fluid resuscitation. But if they're hypotensive from dehydration or burns, we we resuscitate them at a slower pace. So we don't give 20 Cs per kilos in in 10 minutes. We might give it over 20 minutes or so, let's say, or 30 minutes. Uh, When it comes to burns, we've got the Parkland burn formula. There's some debate over, you know, whether that's... Uh, we should be using that formula or not. We'll talk about that when we get to burns. Um, and then uh, third spacing of fluids. Um, that would be, you know, burns would be an example of that when they get interstitial fluid. Cardiogenic, so um, whether it's left ventricular, right ventricular, um, MI or a failure, will determine how we treat them. RV infarcts, you know that they typically present with hypotension, JVD, uh, and a clear chest, and the treatment for right ventricular failure in, in a STEMI is fluids. All right, so we're using Starling's Law. We give them fluids, we increase preload, we increase the stretch of the right side of the heart uh, to bring the blood pressure up. And with RV infarcts, they might need at least 20 cc's per kilo just to get their pressure up to 80 or 84 or so. Our aim is not to get the blood pressure perfect, it's just to uh, improve their um, level of consciousness, improve their perfusion a little bit, but they might they might take 20 cc's per kilo. Now, just I'll get to you in a second, Pete. Um, my experience with uh, inferior wall MIs and RV infarcts is oftentimes they vasovagal as well because when you're going to infarct in the inferior wall, it, the vagus nerve travels right along that diaphragm there. And uh, so you can get vasovagal episodes so if you have an RV infarct or an inferior wall infarct with RV involvement um, you can get a drop in blood pressure and um, I've had this happen to me two or three times where I've initiated the fluid bolus and I get about 250 cc's in and then their blood pressure comes up to normal and when that happens i know it's not the 250 cc's because 250 cc's doesn't raise their blood pressure from 80 systolic to 110 systolic it just doesn't right so <coughs> i know that that was probably just a vasovagal episode and uh, um, um, the, the fluid was sort of inconsequential but if you get that true rv infarct with hypotension they can require you know upwards of 20 cc's per kilo maybe more we don't usually want to push uh, beyond that point um, who had a question? Is that Pete? Yeah, I was going to ask um, how, what your thoughts are on the food challenge before you go to something like dopamine. Like, how much do you want to get in there before you're. you're For an RV infarct? It. Yeah. So I wouldn't go to dopamine at all. So. For an RV infarct, strictly fluids. Um, you're gonna have to patch, I would patch for dopamine, and the, the trouble with dopamine and an RV infarct is the right ventricle is a much thinner muscle and it doesn't respond to catecholamines like uh, dopamine as well as, say, left ventricular failure. And so fluids is a treatment of choice for RV infarcts. Uh, it's unlikely you're gonna go to dopamine for those patients. those STEMI in general, before you transition. Yeah, so STEMI, STEMI hypotension sure if it's in your directive you go for it but uh, if you're you know second-guessing yourself just patch for advice Um, you know dopamine comes with benefits it comes with risks Um, one of the risks is that you're you're basically forcing uh, an infarcting heart to work harder and that can be um, you know can be helpful or it can actually push them over the edge and I'll I'll come to that in a minute Um, or in the next slide presentation. So cardiogenic can be cardiomyopathy, can be valvular, ventricular rupture, um, papillary muscle rupture. So if you've got a STEMI, um, and uh, like a STEMI on an old STEMI or something, you can get ventricular rupture and acute mitral valve regurgitation, but you'll never know unless you auscultate heart sounds as well as lung sounds, right? Um, you know, if you don't hear a clue, I couldn't tell you the difference between one murmur and another. Uh, but I can tell the difference between a, a, a normal closure of the valves and something that's abnormal, and sometimes that's enough to, you know, bring to the ER physician's attention for them to have a listen to the heart sounds and refer to cardiology or cardiac surgery a little sooner, so and get to sort of the underlying cause of their f- failure, uh, congenital defects as well, bradyarrhythmias, tachyarrhythmias. You know, some might argue this isn't a form of shock, it's a, just a form of hemodynamic instability when you're dealing with uh, bradyrhythmias and tachyrhythmias, but um, I'm not sure there's really a difference. I mean, if it, if it causes widespread inadequate uh, perfusion and tissue oxygenation and removal of waste products, is still a shock form. And we treat, um, you know, uh, cardiogenic shock, we might treat with dopamine, dysrhythmias we treat with other drugs, so it's not that different. Other than bradyarrhythmias and tachyarrhythmias, tend to be more of a temporary situation that's correctable pharmacologically or with pacing or with cardioversion. Um, Overdose can cause um, um, cardiogenic shock as well, like calcium channel blockers, beta blockers are gonna be an example. So distributed shocks, we we know those. There's uh, anaphylaxis and neurogenic. And um, for neurogenic shock, really means um, shock, distributive shock, as a result of a spinal cord severing, right? Uh, At least, I think it's T7 um, is uh, where the cord disruption has got to be. Or higher? Or higher, yeah. Yeah, T7 or higher. So we're usually talking C spine fractures. And um, neurogenic shock, uh, in my experience, is a little like RV infarcts in the sense that we treat with fluids, fluid, fluid, fluids, 20 cc's per kilo, 30 cc's per kilo. Um, I've had, uh, one of the reasons why I think uh, I'd love to see some of you pursue um, air ambulance in critical care is you'll see a lot of Patients that you might not otherwise ever see on land, like you'll see a lot of head injury patients, you'll see a lot of chest trauma with chest tubes, you'll see a lot of cardiogenic or sorry neurogenic shock patients, spinal cord injury patients, particularly in the summer. And um, we saw a lot of cord injuries, probably you know half a dozen every summer, and uh, with paralysis. And um, this is purely anecdotal, has nothing to do with scientific evidence. But in my experience, whenever we put them straight on dopamine, they barfed. And um, last thing you want is someone with a C-spine injury throwing up on you because you gotta flip them over on the board. But um, when we resuscitated them with fluids, they did seem to do fine. So uh, uh, purely anecdotally, that would be my personal preference is to resuscitate with fluids. And that would be the reasonable approach initially anyway, 20 cc's per kilo. Patch for maybe another 10 cc's per kilo, and then think about dopamine for distributive shock. Um, The difference, uh, you know, sepsis is not much different either. We fluid resuscitate and then go to a uh, an inotrope. Um, So uh, drugs. Um, So this would be you know temporary form of (laughs) uh, distributive shock where someone gets an excessive amount of nitroglycerin. Anyone had one of those calls or? someone took too much nitro or was given too much nitro yeah I mean he didn't have a pulse he didn't have a pulse thing. he was breathing, he was breathing yeah. so well yeah. i was like i don't think he's dead yeah and i didn't do compressions and then he just woke up 10 minutes later yeah <laughs> <laughs> like did you have a dead, was there a look like 10 yeah <laughs> <his> work, <laughs> <dead>. <laughs> really eh was there I mean, it was great. Right, i didn't break his ribs so it was all good. uh was there any kind of uh did you guys did you, r- like a or did you guys now? Did you guys break out into a Monty Python debate? Uh this patient is dead. Gary says, No, he's not, he's just unstable, that's all. <laughs> but his breathing was so good. Yeah, was it wasn't was agonal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was kind yeah. of <laughs> weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the sun gave him like ten sprays of nitro. Because he had some he had like chest heart history. Yeah. So he just load him up with nitro, then he, you know yeah. got a pressure to not <laughs> Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, rare <laughs> I've only seen I've only seen this once where uh, where patients were hypotensive due to um, uh, head injury massive massive head injury that's that's when uh, that's when the brain starts to herniate through the foramen magnum that's when you start to lose uh, hemodynamic stability um, and uh, I've only seen it once and I saw it in two patients on the same night on the same call um, in this area actually um, where uh, two guys were allegedly thrown out of a moving van on the highway 400 uh, but when we got there and we assessed these two guys in, in the eMERGE department they both had identical injuries they both had depressed skull fractures in the occipital area so we figured someone must have taken a crowbar to the back of their heads and uh, they were both unresponsive they were both hypotensive they were both on dopamine they were both on ventilators and uh, they were both hemodynamically unstable. So just both got tossed out of the van. Uh, no, we think we, we think we someone took them out of the van or and hit them in the head with crowbars, or hit them in the head with crowbars in the van and then tossed them out into the ditch because they were found in the ditch unresponsive. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So obstructive would include um, uh, tension pneumothorax and cardiac tamponade. The one. Th- the one thing I want to say about uh, tension pneumothorax is if you get a traumatic VSA if you get a traumatic VSA the most important thing that you do with that traumatic VSA is auscultate the chest ASAP so right away auscultate the chest well someone else <laughs> is doing compressions of ventilation auscultate the chest because uh, pneumothorax tension pneumothorax is probably the most rapidly reversible cause of cardiac arrest um, you get enough of a tension, you compress the vena cava you get diminished preload to the point where cardiac output drops to nothing. They typically present in a narrow complex, uh, pulseless electrical activity, and you needle the chest, boom, they're alive again. Um, So uh, you gotta listen early. Uh, Pulmonary embolus would be another one. has pressure-sensitive receptors, known as barrel receptors, distributed throughout the body. Sorry, this is a slide that I stole from uh, Walter Tavares. Anyone, any Centennial grads? Do you recognize Walter's voice? That no? Like no? Yeah, it was Walter. Yeah, listen. Factors that appropriately adjust blood pressure to control of the heart rate, stroke volume, and arterial constriction, BP is maintained. No? He's putting on a computer voice or something. No. He's doing a Stephen Hawking's invitation. Anyway, um, so, uh, quickly about compensation. So we we have baroreceptors which are sensitive to uh, uh, to pressure changes, and the baroreceptors are located along the aortic arch and also uh, at the the carotid baroreceptors where the carotid artery bifurcates. And um, so if there's a decrease in blood pressure, uh, that uh, the baroreceptors sense that and sends a message to the vasomotor center of the central nervous system, and the, increase is, uh, uh, the response is an increase in sympathetic, um, sympathetic nervous system output. Um, and um, the release of catecholamines, and activates the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, which we'll talk about in a second, and then others hormonal. So the central nervous system response um, is the four the and the one SM. I can't remember what the SM is. I had. Something for SM, but I can't remember. The four Fs are... <laughs> 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 I don't know. <laughs> I'm just looking blankly, that's all. Uh, flight, fight, freeze, because people... And feces. <laughs> yeah, feces, yeah. Is that what SM is? No, no, that's not... No, that's part of the four Fs, so feces. Yeah, that would be a good one, though. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> you know, if you if you've ever had a, has anyone ever had a STEMI or a chest pain where the guy had, or the woman had an urge to have a bowel movement? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a fight or flight response, I right? Need to yeah. Usually they die right <laughs> after. Usually they die. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a bad sign. Yeah. This is where and it's what's amazing is when you talk to them calmly, you get them on the stretcher right away. That usually that urge goes away. You know, once they calm down a little bit, that urge goes away. But Anyway, so uh, we're going to get a catecholamine response. So that's epinephrine and norepinephrine. Epinephrine is, a, is a beta, predominantly a beta-1 agonist, so you're going to get an increase in chronotropic, inotropic, and dromotropic effects. You've talked about these terms in pharmacology, I'm guessing? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Guys, so what does chronotropic effect mean? Right. Affect the heart, yeah. Inotropic? Yeah, contractility. So some drugs increase contractility. Some drugs decrease contractility. Like beta blockers decrease contra- the force of contractility. So that's inotropic effect. And dromotropic means? Conduction velocity. Conduction velocity. Yeah. So why are you guys saying but sure like you're hesitant? You know we this stuff. remember from TCP school. Right? <laughs> <laughs> we have a coverage. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Doesn't increasing the conduction velocity through the heart just increase the rate? It's a combination, right? So um, um, Sorry. So, so there's a difference between so so the conduction well, velocity to be like shortening the QT and shortening like the P R interval because it's shortening the QT? Yeah, I'm trying to think of a way to frame this. So um <coughs> the when we're talking about uh, conduction velocity, it's usually in reference to th- how accommodating the A V node is. Right. And um so the A V node Uh, tends to be more accommodating in a tachycardia less accommodating in a bradycardia so in other words has a longer refractory period in bradyarrhythmias, a a shorter refractory period in tachyarrhythmias and so certain drugs can alter uh, that conduction velocity uh, negatively or positively so catecholamines all tend to enhance um, uh, dromotropy right and um, uh, beta blockers, uh, calcium channel blockers, tend to decrease conduction velocity. So, um, you know, where... You, the answer to your question is you're basically right, essentially. So, yeah, if you get an increase in dromotropy, you're probably going to get an increase in cr- chronotropy. I'm just trying to think of a, a circumstance, like a drug that, that would... Uh, Uh, Change dromotropy but not affect chronotropy in some way. Like calcium channel blockers tend to decrease AV conduction uh, but may not have a significant effect on the SA node discharge. Mm -hmm. You can have drugs that, you can't have a drug that increases dromotropy without increasing chronotropy, but you can have a drug that increases chronotropy without increasing dromotropy. Yeah, which drug would that be? like atropine, that, right? so atropine would just like take away the vagus stimulation, so you get a rate increase, but you wouldn't necessarily get a dromotropic increase. You do though with atropine, because because uh, it's a it's a vagolytic, right? Sorry, yeah. <laughs> so okay. it's a it's a vagolytic, and the vagus nerve innervates both the SA and AV nodes. Well, so just thinking, oh, yeah, like, okay, so there's not like a beta blocker actually, like is a calcium channel blocker at the the nodal tissue, so that decreases drom- like dromotropy yeah well anyway we're probably getting too academic about this the the bottom line is that um, the bottom line is that um, uh, dromotropy refers to conduction velocity chronotropy refers to impulse discharge essentially yeah so so they're they're related but they're distinctive processes okay so uh, epinephrine also epinephrine also uh, gives you beta-2 Agonist effects, so that's bronchodilation, um, dilated vessels, to the coronaries and skeletal muscles, and some alpha 1 effects as well, so pre- peripheral vasoconstriction. Norepinephrine is predominantly an alpha 1 agonist, so peripheral vasoconstriction, but is also a beta 1 and beta 2 agonist as well. Excuse me. So, uh, compensation: the renin angiotensin system is uh, I always find <coughs> this a really interesting system. so um, if the kidneys are hypoperfused, they release renin what 's interesting uh, and somewhat mind boggling to me when I read this for the first time is a patient in a hypertensive crisis can actually have diminished blood flow to the kidneys because they get vasoconstriction and diminished uh, kidney perfusion and uh, um, that person in a hypertensive crisis may activate their renin-angiotensin system, and that may compound the hypertensor crisis. So, yeah, it's a vicious cycle, exactly. So pretty interesting. So renin reacts with angiotensinogen to form angiotensin-1, and angiotensin-1, when it passes through the pulmonary capillaries, um, um, uh, uh, the angiotensin-converting enzyme changes it to angiotensin-2, and angiotensin-2 is a uh, potent vasoconstrictor And stimulates the secretion of aldosterone as well. Do you remember what aldosterone does? Yeah, sodium retention. So uh, hopefully contribute to increasing the the blood volume, right, by increasing sodium um, retention and uh, water absorption in the kidneys. So chemical compensatory mechanisms, so decrease in PaO2 is sensed by the peripheral chemoreceptors and (coughs) acidosis is also sensed by the uh, central chemoreceptors and um, that stimulates an increase in minute volume maximizes O2 and blow off of pCO2 to compensate f- uh, for the acid base imbalance um, hormonal compensatory mechanism include uh, the antidiuretic hormone and the adrenocorticotropic hormone um, and then uh, a couple of other terms you should be familiar with so blood pressure is uh, Um, In real simple terms, you know, systolic blood pressure is a reflection of blood volume. So, um, you know, if you work for air ambulance and you're on a helicopter where you can't auscultate uh, blood pressures, uh, they oftentimes use... well, if they're not using an arterial um, line, they'll use just a Doppler and tape it onto the radial artery and the brachial artery and just get a systolic blood pressure. Exactly the same as, as you would uh, blood pressure by palpation, right? And then a trauma patient, that's probably all you need is a systolic blood pressure because it's a reflection of volume. And volume is usually the issue when it comes to trauma patients, unless you're dealing with a mechanical obstruction or something. But even then, so diastolic is more a reflection of the, the state of the vessel constriction and uh but um why are you saying oh mean arterial pressure yeah so you know we may we may sort of move away from looking at systolic and diastolic pressures and looking more at mean arterial pressures because it's probably a better uh, picture if you will of of uh, the patient's uh, hemodynamic status so map is systolic plus um, uh, two times the diastolic pressure divided by three, but why do the calculations? It's all done in your monitor for you. Yeah. And our low is 65? Yeah, low is 65. And we have a high that we're concerned with? Uh, probably, but I don't know what that is. Yeah. But um, yeah, you don't want to see uh, MAP drop below 65, generally speaking. How many of you look at the MAP on your monitor? <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> you, <get laughs> you get a blood pressure, right? This is how you distinguish yourself from your PCP colleagues. You start looking at MAP, right? So uh, it's like essentially it's true your like MAP is above 65. Yeah. You're not, you're not really thinking yeah. heads of them because you're, you're confusing what you're yeah you're reasonably perfused yeah but I mean it's it's never blood pressure or MAP alone it's always the whole, the overall clinical presentation and so you look at the mental status you look at the perfusion status you look at cap refill you look at all those things really to get a, a picture of where that patient is and yeah well so uh, MAP is good for all forms of shock or all forms of um, hypotension and um, but you get your MAP from uh, a non-invasive BP, right? So you gotta make sure your NIBP is accurate. So what I do when I take NIBPs is I support the patient's arm the way I would if I auscultate them. I pick up their arm and I hold the elbow and keep the arm straight at about this level, right? And that way you're gonna get an accurate NIBP. Now, if you lay the arm down to take your next NIBP and it's the same as the one you had up, then you're okay to set it for every five minutes or every 10 minutes, whatever's appropriate. Um, so uh, bah, 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 MAP is average over a cardiac cycle, arguably more accurate indicator. Um, I think about uh, when I think about compensation versus decompensation. I don't. Uh, I think in really simple terms, uh, irreversible or refractory shock. I don't even know what that means because I'm not thinking about it. Um, it's not. Um, that's really um, you know a point of academic discussion uh, rather than anything else. So. Clinical presentation for patients in shock include, you know, uh, sympathetic response, (coughs) opiocodiphratic, tachycardias, tachypneas, uh, altered mental status, so restlessness, agitation, drowsiness, those are, um, altered mental status is an early sign of shock, uh, and that should uh, make you worried. Hypotension, again, not a good indicator, less than 90 in adults. Here's the thing about kids, we'll talk about pediatrics next semester, but (coughs) Don't wait until the blood pressure is two times the age plus seventy or less. You got if you got a fluid resuscitate, you got a uh, patch before that because kids will hold their blood pressure and the heart rate for a long time and then drop suddenly. Whereas adults, we typically see a steady decline in their blood pressure and increase in their heart rate. Kids just hold, 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 and then they crash. Uh, so you can't risk waiting till they crash. John Lee and I have talked about uh, sending something off to the MAC and I still got to do this got to talk to him about this but uh, we need better guidelines for kids cuz waiting till the blood pressure is that low is just it's too late right once the kid crashes they're going downhill and they're going to cardiac arrest you can't wait that long yeah um, you were saying that like it's not, we're not going to be getting into like understanding refractory but you have to talk about the refractory Yeah that's a different yeah well, refract, yeah, when I say refractory, irreversible shock, I'm talking about in the context of ver- irreversible shock, not refractory to fluids. Oh. So we will talk about that, yeah. Um, delayed cap refill. Um, <coughs> your best bet for calf refill, from what I understand, is um, not the nail beds. Um, there was a non-scientific study done in the um, office of the chief coroner, and they found that three-day-old corpses had capillary refills less than two seconds in the nail bed. But if you press on the hypothenar region of the thumb like this, you'll get um good that's a good place for cap refill. Um so tank. Um examples of tank shock include um did you have a question? Yeah, the CO2 at the bottom. I was just wondering oh. what we're looking for. Yeah, good question. In a shock state, what what kind of entitled CO two you're looking do you think you're gonna get? It's gonna be low, yeah. So like cardiac arrest, it's gonna be low. Shock state, it's gonna be low. So if you got uh, if you got a low CO2, like a 18 or something, uh, that patient, that's just sort of additional information that this patient's in a hypoperfused state, right? It's, it's um, mm-hmm. so you have to think of it in context too, right? Like, is it low because they're hyperventilating or is it low because they're hypoperfused? So it's a pretty great instrument for gauging both Uh, ventilation and perfusion status all right so tank problems anaphylaxis sepsis neurogenic they typically tend to be warm dry color may vary Um, uh, skin may be fairly normal they may or may not be tachypneic Um, altered mental status the same principles apply they've altered you know diminished cerebral perfusion they're probably going to be restless agitated or drowsy uh, they may be hypotensive um, cap refill probably not going to be helpful because they'll have good cap refill and um, but <coughs> um, you know they're in neurogenic shock for example or anaphylactic shock when they got spectacularly beautiful juicy veins to cannulate right they got nice veins and hypotension they're probably in a distributive type shock um, these classifications of straw uh, of shock I'm not going to test you on these but um, These are good to be sort of familiar with, but we're really talking, um, getting academic uh, when it comes to, um, and I think, you know, the approach to patient care should be fairly simple, should be pretty straight in your mind, whether you're dealing with a uh, compensated or decompensating type of shock, and um, I keep it really simple. So, um, I mentioned pediatrics, they'll drop their uh, vital signs very quickly, and so you know if if you if you wait till their blood pressure is at or below two times the age plus 70 it's too late right you got to patch before so with pediatrics we uh, control external hemorrhage as quickly as possible Um, they have a fairly efficient compensation then suddenly crash on you that's already talked about we want to know the medical history meds and allergies for a few reasons Uh, one because um, if they've got a medical history, it may be uh, a comorbidity that, that is going to diminish their ability to compensate for a shock state. You know, uh, a COPD-er with hemorrhagic shock is gonna have a poor outcome than an otherwise healthy person with hemorrhagic shock. Um, a copd is g- not gonna be able to deal with hypoxia well or diminished oxygen carrying capacity very well. Their meds may affect, affect their compensatory abilities, right? So their meds, uh, may prevent them from mounting a tachycardia if they're on beta blockers or calcium channel blockers. This is stuff you already know. And allergies may be a cause, right? So have to think about those. So when it comes to fluid resuscitation, the IV size ma- matters. Um, ringer's lactate is a more electrolyte balanced solution. I'm not sure why we're not giving ringers. I really think we should move to ringers. It's a better solution. And um, the only reason we don't is because um, it's contraindicated in, in blood administration, but they can always switch to saline. Or uh, I've um, given blood to a lot of patients on a ringer's lactate line because if you're giving blood to a hemorrhagic patient, you're just pushing it in. So the, the chances of the uh, blood cells um, agglutinating from the calcium content in the ringer's lactate are really next to nil, right, if you're pushing the fluids in um so size matters um a 14 gauge will give you a flow rate of 240 mls per minute right look at 16 by comparison 180 so um every paramedic service has a different culture um where i worked uh, Ante, you can speak to this um, there were very few medics who would start a 14 gauge and I remember working with someone, and we had this guy trauma patient who's hit by a van and thrown about 20 feet, and multi trauma, but he had nice, beautiful veins. And my partner was going to start a 16. I said, "Can you start a 14, please?" And uh, he didn't want to start a 14 because it's longer and it's bigger. And um, I said, "He needs a 14." So we put two 14s into him, and after that, this. I worked with was fine with 14s if you can put a 16 in you can put a 14 in. that's what the way I look at it and if you can put a 14 in you can probably put a 12 in so you, what you got to do is push yourself yeah or get a ten in. Um, yeah so so you got to push yourself a little further to uh, especially you know if you see you know big garden hoses that's the time to take the opportunity to do that. Now, the only thing I don't recommend is because the fourteens are a little long, don't put it in the hand. I did that with a guy and it it went in here and it was sort of the catheter was over his wrist and you could actually see the vein sort of popping up from, you from the the catheter sort of stretching the vein upwards. Um so um there's been some research around hypertonic saline i I don't know if we're ever going to see hypertonic saline there there was a proposed study a multi-center study a few years ago with hypertonic saline they discontinued the study because they had some fatalities with head injury patients and um, i'm not sure if they were directly the result of the hypertonic saline or something else but anyway they they discontinued there for a while so um, hemorrhagic shock means rapid loss so we we do rapid infusion Uh, Slower losses like burns, dehydration, DKA, we give fluids more slowly. Especially um, children with uh, diabetes, we fluid resuscitate very slowly because there's a a risk of demyelination and um, uh, cerebral edema with uh, giving fluids too quickly. So we give fluids much more slowly in kids. And there's no rush to give fluids in uh, um, dehydrated kids. That's the thing to remember. Any questions about that review? DKA, do we have to wait for them to become hypertensive to start a fluid administration or can we patch? Patch, yeah. Yeah, DKA you patch. They're normal tensive or hypertensive. Yeah, so we had, we had one. Uh, it was kind of a funny call. So it was uh, like 5.30 in the morning. It was a guy Uh, in his 20s who was um, the superintendent call us from this building because this guy was naked on the elevator floor and it was freaking out people who were getting up to go to work (laughs) and um, he's just lying on the elevator floor writhing and anyway the superintendent took the elevator out of service and uh, police came with us and we got there and um, he was just uh, shouting and uttering gibberish and when I put my hand on his shoulder he was hot really hot to touch Anyway, he had a blood sugar that registered high, and um, uh, I patched to give him some fluids because he didn't meet the hypotensive protocol. And I gave him a liter of fluid, and he was awake and talking at that point. So, yeah, with hyperglycemic diabetics, DKA, it's a m- like a little bit of fluid will do amazing things for them because they they need they're usually profoundly dehydrated, right? Because they lose sugar, they pee out the sugar, and they lose fluids with it, and. Um, uh, they just need some rehydration, but we we ran a liter, took us uh, you know, we s- we started it on a stretcher and we got about a liter in by the time we got to the hospital. So it's a good twenty minutes or so. Yeah. We have a patch point for uh, DKA. Yeah. In able patients under twelve. Yeah. Um, why is that? I know that uh, <clears throat> a little bit about it. But the cells could potentially be damaged yeah so yeah yeah so the concern is uh, demyelination of the neurons and cerebral edema so um, the only reason the reason for the patch point is the doc wants to um, just wants to sort of reaffirm the importance of giving fluids slowly so the doc may actually give you an order for you know 200 mils an hour or um, some other fluid amount as opposed to a 10 cc per kilo bolus or something like that so yeah so they might just they'll just tell you to infuse it slowly yeah that's the main thing and it's always good it's it's never a bad thing to get a dock on the line because now you've got a bit of a shared accountability going on between you and them which is a good thing Oh, okay, sure.